Welcome to Ethical Theory Review. This is Brad Kokolat at the University of Kansas. If you're interested in a list of upcoming interviews I'm going to do, you can go to ethicaltheoryreview.com. And if you have any ideas for future authors I should interview, or if you are an author, please send me an email. I'd also like feedback on the podcast. It's a work in progress, and I'd love to know how to make it more interesting, especially to faculty and grad students in philosophy and related disciplines. So if you have any ideas or any thoughts, send me an email, bradkokolet at ku.edu. I hope you enjoy the episode. Is there really some sort of human nature or essence? And can an account of human nature inform or ground our theories of moral virtue and human well-being? According to neo-Aristotelian moral philosophers, the answers are yes and yes. They typically hold that both human virtue, including moral virtue, and human well-being or happiness are the result of human beings leading excellent human lives. And in order to determine whether an individual human being, say you, is living a defective, passable, or maybe excellent life, they think we can usefully appeal to an account of human nature. As Aristotle's work and influence shows, this theoretical approach is worthy of serious consideration. But to pull it off today, we need to replace Aristotle's pre-modern account of human nature with a defensible modern alternative. Various neo-Aristotelians associated with the virtue ethics movement have tried to crack that nut. But have they succeeded? And if not, is there a better path forward? These are among the core topics animating a new book called Virtue and Meaning, A Neo-Aristotelian Perspective. I'm very excited to welcome the author, David McPherson of Creighton University, to Ethical Theory Review podcast. Welcome, David. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, it's an exciting endeavor. I'm honored to be the uh, the first podcastee or interviewee, I guess. Yeah, I don't we'll, know. <laughs> we'll see how it goes, right? Yeah. <laughs> So I really love the book, and I want to encourage anybody who's interested in virtue ethics or Aristotelian theories to read it. And one thing I want to bring out today is a lot of, I think there's some really exciting innovations about ways to try to develop virtue ethical theories based on Aristotle in your book. So people may not buy into all your conclusions, obviously, we're philosophers, but I think there's a lot to be learned methodologically and just new avenues. So I really wanted to start by saying I loved your book. Thanks a lot, Brad. I really appreciate it. No, that means a lot. Yeah. So I wanted to start out just saying, what are your main aims that animate the project? So what did you find lacking in, in dominant or, you know, mean, we might think it was contemporary mainstream neo-Aristotelians? Yeah. No, you know, I, Aristotle says that philosophy begins with wonder, but I think it often begins with discontent when that you're, you're not happy with something. I remember as as an undergrad, I, you know, I, I knew of sort of like Kantianism, utilitarianism, but I was kind of discontent with them. Although I, I, you know, there's aspects of Kant that I certainly liked more than utilitarianism. I remember reading After Virtue from by Alistair McIntyre, and it sort of like gave voice to my discontent with some of the kind of common modern philosophies, modern moral philosophies. And of course, I read uh, Anscombe's Modern Moral Philosophy, which had very much influenced McIntyre. But in After Virtue, McIntyre doesn't really give a, a strong program, any positive program. He's sort of still kind of working that out. And so as I began to read further, as people developed upon Anscombe's, part of the suggestions that were, that were already there in Anscombe's modern moral philosophy, I guess the, the discontent there was that it, it felt overly flat in the sense that it took this third person observer standpoint on our human form of life and, and tried to come up with an account of human flourishing that was understood on par or that is understood on par with the flourishing of other living things. And so you see this in philosophers like Philippa Foote and Rosalind Hursthouse and Alistair McIntyre. So they're trying to ground an account of virtue ethics based upon identifying those traits of character 
that are thought to be conducive to human flourishing, where this is understood on analogy with the flourishing of other living things. And so I guess I was dissatisfied that this didn't seem to capture a lot of the meanings that we live by and after which we seek in our lives. In, in other words, it, it didn't encompass the way in which I think we are distinctively and fundamentally the meaning-seeking animal. And so although in one sense, it's responding, I think, to the modern problem of what we call disenchantment. Max Weber used this term of disenchantment. I mean, a short version of, of that is just it's a loss of meaning or value, especially with the rise of modern science. So being a neo-Aristotelian, we're, we're doing neo-Aristotelian virtue ethics in the wake of the modern scientific revolution. And so for a long time, there's been this question of the fact value problem or the is-ought problem, where how do you are there values in the world? And, and Neurostelians have always been opposed to any kind of ethical subjectivism, have found a way, have been seeking to try to find a way to ground ethics in the world, some kind of ethical objectivity. And so insofar as they're doing that, they're seeking a kind of re-enchantment, you might say, right? They're trying to find objective values or uh, as uh, Philippe Foote calls it, a kind of natural normativity. But so in, in that sense, I think that they are they are seeking a kind of re-enchantment. But part of what I was dissatisfied is I, I don't think it goes far enough. It's still overly disenchanted because of the way it ignores many of the meanings by which uh, we live our lives and after which we seek, particularly overlooks what I call strong evaluative meaning. Strong evaluative meanings are meanings involving some kind of qualitative distinction like the higher, the noble, the sacred. So you can contrast the, the higher with the lower, the noble with the base, the sacred with the profane and so forth. And they're seen as being normative for our desires. They're, they're not good because we desire them, but we ought to desire them. So they're categorical in that sense. And that they're incommensurable with things we just happen to desire. So I mean, a good example, like you just happen to desire a flavor of ice cream. So like I like chocolate ice cream, you like strawberry ice cream. You're not a bad person for liking strawberry ice cream. It's just a preference. And it's, it's a weak good in that sense, whereas a strong good would be something like the nobility of virtue or human dignity, where it's not a mere preference that, that you don't care about it, is, it redounds to your blame if you don't care about it. So it has that kind of categorical feature that it's something you ought to care about. And it has this qualitative aspect to it as well. It's, it's higher. It's the normatively higher or the noble sacred and, and so forth. And so so I think because neurostudents have tended, maybe under the pressure of the, the modern scientific paradigm, have tended towards a kind of scientistic, even though they're trying to resist it in some ways, there's a kind of quasi-scientific approach to, to human flourishing. So Hursthaus, for instance, compares it with you know, our ethical evaluations are on par with an ethologist's evaluations of animals in terms of whether they're good specimens of their kind. And so it's trying to, I think in some ways, trying to draw too much on the prestige of science to ground a kind of objectivity when I think we need to take a more first personal engaged perspective, you might say, or participative perspective within our human form of life, which is, I think there is a sort of importance of a third person or trying, you know, what, what could actually ground our experience, uh, what I would call our moral ontology that could ground our moral phenomenology. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get back more of those issues. I guess the, the main complaint up front is that I think neurocitians have not done enough to sort of account for this engaged perspective of our human form of life as meaning-seeking animals, where we're seeking strong evaluative meaning in life, and then we're also seeking a meaningful life as a whole. And then ultimately, I push in the direction of questions of more uh, cosmic meaning, or sometimes what we, we speak of the meaning of life. We have something like, how do, what's our place in the whole, you know, in the grand scheme of things? And is there some kind of purpose we can find in, in the grand scheme of things? So, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, the, main, the main thrust yeah. there. I'm really glad the way you did that, you gave a nice overview 
one thing you mentioned at the end there, you have chapters on cosmic meaning and the idea that maybe human beings are naturally religious in some sense or mm -hmm. spiritual. And we'll get to that. And in the short run, we're going to be focusing on the stuff you mentioned earlier about your dissatisfaction with, say, a group of people who get called Aristotelian naturalists. So mm -hmm. Hearst House and Foot. And I think one thing your book does nicely is it brings in McIntyre, where a lot of people don't necessarily bring McIntyre or haven't followed his work across time. So one thing I wanted to do is sort of hone in on something you were saying about there are these other approaches, Foot and Hearst House are good examples. And Michael Thompson is obviously a big influence in talking about the idea of Aristotelian categoricals. And they try to give it a non-biological account of human species. So they want to give an account of what's normal or healthy for human specimens, human, you know, individual human beings, based on an account of something like a, the norm for the species. But they don't want to base that on empirical biology. So in that sense, they're not literally basing their theories on empirical science. But in the first chapter, you develop what I think of as sort of a methodological critique of the way they think of developing an account of human nature. I think of it as like an anthropological approach. Like if you're watching a nature documentary and they were like the human beings and they describe features typical. And I think it's interesting that you don't like that approach and you contrast it with this first personal perspective drawing on Taylor, that the idea that we should think of human nature in terms of our capacity to respond to certain types of constitutive goods in strong evaluation. So it's a, it's first personal and it's, I think of it as being a type of moral psychology. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right in these other Aristotelians, you just don't see, like you can read natural goodness and there's basically no substantive moral psychology. Mm-hmm. But one thing I want to talk about is John McDowell's role in your argument. I think you argue that these more third personal approaches, they run into problems that McDowell has diagnosed in his work. Mm -hmm. And so I think in some ways you're agreeing with and building on some of McDowell's objections to someone like Hearst House or Foote. And then you're saying that your meaning seeking animal model of human nature shows us a way to avoid his objections he has in, in a better direction. So could you say more about McDowell's criticisms as you understand them? And then yeah. that'll naturally lead into your alternative. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. So I, I want to emphasize it. It's not that Foote and Hearst House and Thompson and McIntyre and so forth. It's not that they don't give any sort of place to the first person. I mean, how, how could you not in some way? And, you know, like uh, Foote will talk about reasons for action, right? We have certain kinds of reasons and, you know, and, and others others use the same kind of talk. But part of it's a complaint of not going far enough and exploring what kinds of reasons are those? Like, how are they shaped in various ways from, you know, by these meanings that we inhabit as, as meaning-seeking creatures. And so, yeah, so I think McDowell does more to avoid what he calls the sideways-on view of human life. This is what I was sort of calling the third personal or observational standpoint. And you see this in his account of the rational wolf, right? As he's thinking about a wolf who requires reason. It used to hunt with the pack in virtue of its wolfy nature, right? You could have these Aristotelian categoricals that would specify kind of its its life form, right? It's the, the way that Hearst House puts it as, you know, its characteristic way of going on. And from this, you get certain, what falling from Anscombe are called Aristotelian necessities, that which, that on which good hangs. So, so those things that are hunting, hunting with the pack for the wolf is given the Aristotelian categoricals, given its characteristic way of going on uh, is uh, an Aristotelian necessity because good hangs on hunting with the pack, right? You to ensure that you get the meat. But what if you get this wolf that requires reason? This is the thought experiment that McDowell gives. Yeah, it requires reason. And 
is you know able to say well i don't know maybe i want to be a free rider uh, i'll also <laughs> i'll just kind of jump in uh, after the uh, after the deer or i don't know whatever other critter has been killed and just free ride in the system take advantage of all these uh, non-rational wolves and now mcdowell acknowledges obviously there's still going to be aspects of the wolfy nature that are going to be operative there in terms of taste for meat and so forth but but the point he wants to bring out is that really the force of ethical reasons only come from within that it's actually the experience of the demands of the noble on us that he talks about, you know, our eyes become open to certain demands that are seen as being there in any case, whether or not we're responsive to them. Uh, but we can become responsive to them as we're sort of brought up within a particular uh, ethical outlook. And, and the sense is that there is an ethical reality to which we ought to be responsive. And so... Yeah, and so I, I sort of build this out some also drawing on some of Charles Taylor's recent work. He has a book called The Language Animal, but really this is a theme that's been running throughout his work. Going back to his philosophical papers in 1985, he has one called Human Agency and Language. And so he's been very interested in the way that language shapes our human form of life, that language is not just sort of you know, a tool by which we encode information or, and then are enabled to uh, control and manipulate the world and just have more eased access to things. But rather, language actually constitutes the difference between this. This is a use. Uh, this is a kind of way that McDowell puts a difference between having a world versus living in an environment. You know, language makes possible a space of meaning or a space of reasons that we inhabit. And so it shapes, it sort of shapes our experience. We, uh, linguistic beings have a different kind of experience than non-linguistic beings. We, we act in light of the noble or we act in light of what we perceive to be normatively higher. And there's, you know, again, it's not like Foote, Hearsthaus, McIntyre and Thompson totally ignore this realm. It's, it's that they tend to fall back on a kind of almost quasi-scientific approach. I mean, they, they want to avoid saying this is just a science, but they, they, they sort of develop this account of human flourishing where it's understood on an analogy with like an ethologist evaluations of a, a gazelle or something. When I would say we, we have to go deeper and attend to the strong evaluative realm of meaning if we're going to properly understand what it is to be human and how to live, how to live well as a human being. Yeah, I think because the one thing I like, I mean, I thought about that, that rational wolf case. So, you know, you're a wolf and somehow the wolf becomes rational and it, right? But you can apply McDowell's thought experiment to the human case and some people just choose not to have kids. Yeah. And that's because they have other things they want to do. Maybe they yeah. want to be an artist. They yeah. choose not to have a family. And it seems to me pretty plausible that it's a part of the human form of life that we have children and raise them. Yeah. So bracket the question of whether it's a matter of being, you know, whether that's built into uh, that's a moral demand or not. You could just say, you can imagine the rational human saying, look, I believe that it's a, a normal functioning member of the human species understood as a species across time. Though the ones who are contributing to the species well uh, have families. Yeah. But I don't really care whether I'm a good human being in that sense. What I care yeah. about is my life and I want to be a great artist. And so I think there, there are examples like that that aren't you know necessarily motivated by like, I want to be a free riding jerk, which was the original example that bring out why you want an account of human nature where being a normal or defective member of your kind, you want it to generate some kind of normative results. Like yeah. whether it's like making emotions fit or providing reasons for action or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think you did a really nice job of, of showing that foot 
in her changes and her views on reasons across time didn't really, from her early to her middle to late work, she didn't really ever solve that problem that, that comes out with the McDowell example. So when you go on in the book, what you do is you have this idea of human beings as a meaning-seeking animal that involves a bunch of these ideas we've talked about from Taylor with strong evaluation and, and, you're, and you brought in nicely the fact that we're, we use language and we can become mm -hmm. articulate about yeah. our values. And then what you do is you connect that up with questions about morality and also a good human life. And as I mentioned, the introduction, that's a common structure for Aristotelian theory, but now you've got a new theory of human, human nature that we've started sketching and you connect it up with the good life and also morality. So what I wanted to do now was turn a little bit to this morality question. So you address questions about what you could call morality's authority mm -hmm. or the rationality of moral commitment when it requires sacrifice. And maybe you could say something about previous New Interesting Approaches, the more third personal ones, mm -hmm. the more anthropological ones. How did they try to deal with this question of, of morality's authority and the rationality of moral commitment. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I want to just back up a little bit on your your uh, having kids point because just I think that's right. ample to, to illustrate. <laughs> uh, I actually wrote a essay. It was a while ago. It was one of my early early essays I wrote called "A Virtue Ethic Approach to Bearing and Rearing Children." We had just had our, mm -hmm. our first child not so long prior. So I was like, want to think a lot about being a parent and its place in the good life. And I think you're exactly right. Like that Hearst House and Foote and others have this problem of like, are we defective if we don't have kids? Even in that sort of early essay, I was kind of appealing to this idea of being a meaning seeking creature that part of what being human is, it opens up, uh, our eyes are open to a, a lot of things of strong value or a strong evaluative meaning, and they can be in conflict. And this will come up as we get into into some of the things we're about to discuss here. But I also want to sort of emphasize that it's not that my position sort of just runs like roughshod or disconnected from what we might call our first nature or our basic biological capacities as, as the sort of rational social animals that we are. I mean, I think it's a matter of picking out what's noblest and best or what's most admirable in human life. And certainly one of the most admirable things in human life is to like give birth to a child and, and raise up that child to, to live well and to, you know, to, to care for the next generation. And of course, there's other ways one can do that besides being a parent. But, uh, but you do have things like, you know, even uh, Hearst House mentions the, uh, you know, the, the monk, right, who forgoes having, having children and uh, to devote themselves to God. And so it, it brings in like, there are many strong goods that we can find in our lives. And it's sort of this question of how you how, how do you how do you lead a life where you're, you're properly responsive to the to the goods that there are? So, I think that's kind of looks ahead to part of what I'm going to say here, with with regard to the question you're just asking. So, so the the second chapter is called virtue, happiness, and meaning, which gets to this question of you know the claims that that virtue has upon us. And so, I mean, of course, Aristotle has this account of virtue and eudaimonia where he wants to make the case that the truly eudaimonia is off. I mean, there's sort of this question of how do you translate eudaimonia? It sort of literally means a, a good spirit or a good demon, but it means something. Well, I mean, there's sort of this question. It's something like happiness. Uh, it's often translated as happiness. Uh, it could be translated as like well-being or flourishing. A lot of Aristotelians have gone to look talking about it as flourishing, 
flourishing does have this more third personal aspect where maybe happiness has a more first personal aspect with, but with that, it also has, you know, a worry that it's just merely a kind of preference satisfaction kind of view of happiness or desire satisfaction view, where it's like merely, merely subjective that it doesn't, is not like a true happiness. And so what I try to bring together is that, that I want, I, I want to suggest that there's a concept of happiness that's characterized in terms of a meaningful life. Uh, and I think this actually gets pretty close to Aristotle's account of eudaimonia. You know, he says that, you know, life, life, uh, you know, can't just be for the sake of amusement. If it were for the sake of amusement, all, you know, life would be absurd because if all of our strivings and toils were just for amusing ourselves and life would be absurd, it has to be about something serious. And I think that that sense of a serious life, like a meaningful life. And, and what Aristotle is, is concerned about, of course, is that like ultimate end of action, that thing that we're seeking in our lives, you know, that everything we see as contributing to. And I think that's actually, you know, I argue that that's best characterized in terms of a, a meaningful life. And I think that that helps to solve some of the problems. I think that sometimes nearest and virtue, virtue ethicists have gotten into and in trying to think about the relationship between happiness and virtue. And of course, you also see this in the meaning of life literature. For instance, uh, Susan Wolf is a good example of this. So, you know, going back to Sidgwick, there's, you know, the dualism of practical reason, right? You have moral demands upon us, particularly for other regarding concern. And then you have certain kind of prudential considerations about pertaining to our happiness. Um, and uh, part of what part of what Wolf does is says, well, well, maybe there's this third category of, of meaningfulness, right? And so you could you could have a meaningful life, but not a, ha a happy life for for uh, for Wolf. You could have a meaningful life, but not a moral life. And vice versa, moral life, but not a meaningful life, moral life, but not a, a happy life, etc. Right? Part of what I want to say, I, I'm wanting to develop an account that brings these together by virtue of saying that we have a concept of happiness that we can understand in terms of something like a meaningful life. And I think this is actually what Aristotle is really after when he's talking about the ultimate end of our actions. And that virtue is constitutive of this, that virtue makes us happy, that it's its own reward. So ultimately, I argue for a constitutive account of the relationship between virtue and happiness. This is really the, the question, what's the link between virtue and happiness or why, why, be, why be virtuous is sort of the question that I think drove Foote throughout her career. And she had a number of distinct positions. So I go through her, her development, you know, in order to sort of contrast my position. So her first, her first position was uh, a sort of instrumentalist account. You see this in her early paper, Moral Beliefs where she wanted to show no matter like what you want, no matter what you happen to desire, right? Uh, she could show, she, she tried to argue that you would need the virtues to get those things, right? Uh, and she thought it was, it was easy enough with things like temperance and courage and, and even prudence, uh, although she's kind of depending upon a relatively thin notion of those. Uh, it's just, courage is just sort of like, you know, overcoming fearful situations. It's not, doesn't necessarily include the sense of the noble and, and doing sort of the just deed in the face of a uh, great trial. So part of the problem with that account is it's, it's not that hard to think of like an unjust person who, you know, who uh, their injustice could actually like given certain desires they have could be conducive to those desires. Um, yeah. It's it's hard to, to rule that out. So it doesn't seem to give us a sort of firm grounding for the, the life of virtue. Uh, and it also doesn't seem to give us the, the right reason that we should we should be virtuous, not not because it sort of pays off to like, you know, you know, people say that something like honesty is the best policy. Like if you're an honest business person, you're going to get more money and, than otherwise, which, you know, of course, is not always true. So it sort of misses out. on I think the reason that the virtuous person acts upon, which is something like the noble. 
so I, I then contrast with my constitutive account before going on to discuss her sort of two further develop, uh, more developed accounts. So my basic account of what it is to be virtuous is that the virtues are modes of proper responsiveness to strong goods, and particularly these constitutive goods. So a strong constitutive good is a good that in being properly responsive to it, it's constitutive of our fulfillment or, or meaningful life. So for instance, we, there's a constitutive good in our own human potential as rational social animals that this is sort of maybe you might think of the standard or a situation account where we respond to something noble or admirable in our human nature in, in seeking to be to be just, to be to be courageous, to, to be practically wise and so forth. Right. I also want to argue that there are other kinds of constitutive goods, these, these kind of fundamental level of strong goods that constitute for us the good life. There are other human beings can be constitutive goods for us. So I think Neurostilians have often taken overly instrumentalized view of um, of other regarding concern. Uh, well, sort of par- paralleling this sort of instrumentalized account that Foot gives and moral beliefs, where you know I think uh, Neurostilians need to develop an account of human dignity as a constitutive good. That part of justice and, and kindness and and so forth is to be properly responsive to the dignity of others. And in being so responsive, it constitutes for us a more meaningful life, that the just person in being properly responsive to the dignity of others finds meaning in that and devoting themselves to, you know, to acting with justice and, and love and compassion and so forth. So that's that's the sort of basic of my account. Now, Foote herself goes on to develop something of a constitutive account, but it's it's what I would call a weak evaluative version of the constitutive account. So I put forward strong evaluative version, the, you know, human dignity or the nobility of virtue. These are things we ought to be responsive to. And in being responsive, it, it constitutes for us a, a noble, higher, more meaningful kind of life. Foot in her, her uh, paper in the 70s, morality as a system of hypothetical imperatives, develops this account where basically uh, in calling it hypothetical imperatives, it's like, well, if you're if you're into virtue, <laughs> you know, if you're into like justice and kindness and so forth, then yeah, virtue, you know, virtue is going to be constitutive of of your happiness and she thinks virtue tends to have a claim on on the human heart given the kind of rational social creatures that we are but she eventually saw this as a despairing mood that she was in she got into and she sort of thought that you know reasons couldn't uh you know it, it was a basically a human account that given you know what we we desire the passions we have what we care about reasons reason is a slave of the passions as as Hume would put it and so given that people tend to care about things we you know we can say okay then you know this is this is what you ought to do to to promote what you care about but she she sort of talks about us being volunteers in the army of duty right rather than conscripts um and McDowell has a line where he says well we're not we're not exactly like conscripts per se. it's it's like we already like are, are brought up in a form of life in which it's like the continuing loyalty to the demands of the moral life that that shows our obedience, but it's it's not like we were just conscripted out. It's like we're already in it, right? Uh, and so again, you, you you have the same kind of issues around like you know the the reasons for being moral is it for the sake of the noble, a demand that's there in any case, right? Um, that uh, we have to be responsive to, uh, and so which which would apply to whether you care about morality or not, right? Um, so that's a sort of interesting intermediate position where she's, you know, uh, kind of gives up on kind of the task <laughs> that she's sort of set for herself in, in her work. Um, I should say the instrumentalist account, you see that the, the, the first version of her account that I, I mentioned, uh, Rosalind Hursthaus is kind of known for putting forward this best bet view that virtues are a best bet for kind of flourishing in the long run. So you, you see this in, in other people as well. 
So to go on to th uh, Foot's third position, so you first have this instrumentalized account where virtue is a sort of, you know, she wants to show that you have a reason to be virtuous because whatever you want will help you get it. Uh, she ultimately didn't think that worked. She went on to this view of, you know, this weak evaluative account where, you know, virtue is constitutive of happiness if, if we care about it. Uh, but then then she her, her settled position, which she really develops in her book, Natural Goodness, is to say that virtues are are what we characteristically need for things to go well for us. Right. So a, a good human being will just sort of will be the will be virtuous. They'll be the one who properly responds to virtuous reasons. And characteristically, this this enables things to go well for us. But virtue and happiness can actually come apart. Even when that's the case, we still have re the virtuous person will still have reasons to act virtuously disconnected from their own happiness. And that's part of what I want to resist. I, I, so I want to resist that view because, again, for me, virtue is just responsiveness to strong goods, proper responsiveness, that in being properly responsive, we will make our lives meaningful. Fulfilling, meaningful will be a higher, noble, more meaningful form of life. But this is not to say there won't be great loss in the life of virtue. There is great loss in the life of virtue. And so this is actually where I part company with, with McDowell. So McDowell, I mean, one among other places I part company with him, he gives a sort of more stoicized account of, of the relationship between virtue and happiness. So he agrees with my sort of strong evaluative account of constitutive account of this relationship. So he says, you know, like the, the virtuous person has their own concept of happiness where virtue is its own reward because the virtuous person will find happiness in doing the noble thing, which is the virtuous thing. Uh, and again, you can see this in Aristotle. Aristotle says the virtuous person acts for the sake of the noble, and this is what the virtuous person aims at. And so the, the eudaimonia is, is something like a life of uh, a noble life and a life of noble virtuous activity. He says non-human animals cannot be eudaimon because they're not capable of noble activity. So this is where we're seeing happiness is understood, in, I think, for Aristotle in, in this sort of strong evaluative terms. But McDowell takes this in a stoicized direction by saying that there is no loss in the life of virtue, that because of their concept of benefit, there can't be loss in the virtue. So he says, for, for instance, like foregoing uh, certain pleasures because of the virtue of temperance, the virtue of temperance just silences those considerations of pleasure. And he also says, he, he gives another example of the virtue of courage, silencing, as he puts it, the, the, the considerations of uh, losing a limb, <laughs> which I, I think this is where, you know, he, he mm -hmm. goes too far, you know, because I think bodily integrity is itself a strong good. It's something we ought to be concerned about. And so he's he's sort of wanting, in a way, this sort of conflict-free, I mean, it's sort of, you know, Kant, of course, develops a stoic line himself, wanting this sort of conflict-free realm of, of ethical demands upon us. But I think, so part of the problem, I think, with McDowell is he doesn't recognize the sort of plurality of strong goods, going back to the point we were mentioning about parenthood versus, you know, wanting to be a great artist. Of course, you have the famous Paul Gauguin case. I don't think he settled it quite rightly, in my view, but but we do have these conflicting goods in our lives. And so it's a question of how do we properly order those uh, in the in the context of a whole life. So I'll stop there and yeah, I'll no, let you follow up. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think that's great. I mean, that's one of the things I was going to recommend people who are interested in virtue ethics. One cool thing about your book is how you lay out, I think, these different stages of foot and connect it up. And then you're, you, you really kind of lay out the preceding dialectic in a really way that invites people to think about it. And I think that your approach, this first personal approach, talking about meaning, 
one real benefit is you get into nuances of how people should think about to characterize the cost they're going to pay. So for example, you mentioned these letter writers. They're people who, you know, you can think of anybody who uh, maybe they're pressured to go along with some immoral cause. And if they don't, it's going to come at great personal cost to themselves, maybe death. It's going to come to great cost to their family. Uh, you know, should you whistle blow? I mean, there's all kinds of cases like this. And so how do you think about those? So if the person decides, I think it's moral virtue would be to take the high road here. Yeah. And so I think one nice thing about your approach is you think it would be a mistake to say, oh, the competing considerations should be silenced or something like that. That seems that they wouldn't harm you. Okay. Anything like that's going to just seem very implausible. You know, you have to have a strong theoretical argument for that, for us to think yeah. that. And then, so then you want to agree there is some kind of dilemma or some kind of competing considerations here. And then you sort of look at how should we describe why this is the best choice? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you, you introduce some language I actually found pretty helpful about, you're not saying you're going to have the most happy life you could if you pick the moral option in these tough cases. <laughs> it's not like you're going to maximally be happy. But one thing you say is, well, your life is actually going to maybe, your choice of making a noble sacrifice may actually contribute in a great way to the meaning of your life. Yeah. And that's one thing I think you said. And so I think bringing in the concept of meaning to the discussion yeah. is intuitively really appealing right there as of yeah. saying that's exactly what people want to say. And then, you know, you, I think you wanted to go one step further and say something like, well, this is the, this is the closest to happiness that's available to the person. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, I mean, I hope that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's, what, that's what I'm striving for. Yeah, so uh, just to go to this letter writer example, which I think is helpful for filling out some of the things we're talking about. So these letter writers that Foote discusses are these people. They wrote letters, you know, they were in the concentration camps or in, were imprisoned in some way, awaiting their execution. You know, it seemed like inevitable execution. They weren't always sure that they were, but they probably saw saw the writing on the wall. And um, Foote wants to say that for the letter writers, the thought was that for them, happiness wasn't possible. Like they didn't, they couldn't be happy with a life in which they would have gone along with the Nazis, right? So that wouldn't have been happiness for them. And so in that sense, there's, she's still saying there's a kind of connection between virtue and happiness, but it's, it's sort of the sense that happiness wasn't possible. Whereas what I want to say is like they chose uh, the happiness that was possible in a way, happiness understood as a meaningful life. Like how can I still live with integrity to go back to, you know, your, your, your appeal to Williams on integrity. How can I still live with integrity doing, doing what, what I can't but do right in, in sort of conscience. Right. Uh, but knowing that this is going to separate me from my family. I mean, some of the most, I mean, if you read these, uh, this is from a book called dying, we live. If you read some of these letters, the ones to the children are just so heart wrenching. Similar kinds of things you see in uh, the Terrence Malick film, uh, A Hidden Life, that came out this last year. Um, and so this sort of conflict between like doing, you know, what you think justice demands of you, and like, but that requiring you being parted from your family. And for a lot of these letter writers, almost all of them, if not all of them, uh, it was also a sense of doing doing the will of God. I think they had this, they're very religious. And so uh, comes out in a lot of their, their le letters. But the point is that there, it's, you can't say that there's not, a, there's not loss in the life of virtue. And it's, it's very evident here, you know, like, 
the importance of family life and your children. These are strong goods we ought to be concerned about. And you can wrestle with like, what should I do in this sort of conflict? Should I go along just so I can be with my family and not be parted from them? Uh, or, or, you know, do I have to do the thing that, you know, will, you know, my children look back on my life, they'll be proud and it'll be, you know, sort of a, uh, be a light to, to guide them in some way, the example uh, in their lives. And so I think they came in their conscience to feel like th they sort of, here I stand, I can do no other. But it doesn't mean that there, there wasn't sort of great loss in that that life. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, the act of sort of, you might call it a martyrdom was meaningful because of the stand that they took in dying for the sake of, for, of love and justice. Right. Um, but again, this is great. There's great loss here. I think, I think the danger ultimately where, uh, happiness or a meaningful life and virtue can come apart is actually where we lose our grip entirely on our strong evaluative framework of meaning where like you, you start to think that, it's all absurd. Nothing really matters. Life throws up these tragic uh, situations, right? And you just sort of lose your grip on your the sort of strong value of sources of meaning. And so, part of what I get to there, and it sort of points ahead to the to the to the last two chapters, is what I call the problem of cosmodicy, which I think is not something that nearest students have have really addressed at all, um, or if, if or if only implicitly, which is you know is uh theodicy of course we know is how do we justify god's ways in light of evil and suffering cosmodicy is how do we justify the world or life in the world in the face of in the face of evil and suffering you know is, is it good to be here is it good to have been born we don't choose to be born but we're all sort of tasked with the <laughs> coming to determine whether or not it's good to be here can we come to affirm life in the world is worthwhile and i think I, this is part of where I think we have to go cosmic. Uh, I mean, this sort of points ahead to where I go, that we, we have to address issues of, of cosmic meaning or the meaning of life, because because we're, we are sort of confronted at times with this question of like, is life in the world worth living? Is, is, it, is it good to be here? And Aristotle actually, you know, he, he himself addresses this. He, you know, it's actually in a book... Uh, book one, chapter five of Eudemian Ethics, where he sort of raises this question of like, whether whether it's good to have been born, it actually sort of corresponds with, with book 10, I, I believe chapter seven, where he's, when that, that what I appealed to earlier, if, if all of life was just about amusement, then life would be absurd, given all the sufferings and toils we, we undergo. Uh, life has to be about something serious. And so he's raising a similar point, but he's, right, he's, he's putting in terms of like, is it good to have been born? He thinks if it was just about pleasure seeking, then we'd have to answer no, given the sufferings that are there in the world, uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have been worthwhile to be born. There has yeah. to be something higher and noble. And ultimately for him, the contemplative life, how we can come to affirm that it's good to be here. I end my book defending the contemplative, the right. contemplative life. No, and I think, I mean, this is something I think we'll come back to that's interesting to me is that, so if you think of those cases where you're going to pick the noble path, you're going to take the high road. That's what we would say it today. Yeah. You know, people don't talk about nobility that much. Yeah. And they do appear, uh, my kids watch the show Rescue Bots. This guy's like noble. It's like a surfer term. I don't know. Nobody, you know, but so we would say you take the high road or whatever, you know, yeah. don't sink to other people's level. Okay. You take the high road. You could see that is connected to self-respect, your personal integrity. I think that's the, you know, the idea of strong evaluation. It makes sense. And, but then if you get to a point where you keep taking the high road and it looks like that cost is really high. So that's, I think the one thing that you said, yeah. I, I really like about your position is you could say, well, look, Taking the high road, every time you take the high road, it contributes to the meaning of your life. And that actually provides a welfare benefit. But you may be able often in these cases to see 
in, you know, causally, you're going to do this thing that's going to contribute to your well-being a little bit, taking the high road, sticking to your integrity. But you can foresee that's going to bring in its tail massive welfare costs. Yeah. So it's overall, the choice is going to lead, it's going to be on the whole prudentially bad for you. But the thing that is important to recognize is there is actually this welfare benefit to yeah. acting from integrity. But, and so that's true. And that's, I think that's very nice innovation and it's improvement on maybe, you know, the kind of stoic views um, or the or the stuff I, at least I agree with you that what I see in foot, for example, in her house. But then there's this thing, if you keep doing that, at some point you're going to start wondering, okay, I keep taking the high road and I, and that does add to the me of my life in some sense. So like at my eulogy, people will talk about this. But if, if I look around me at everybody taking the high road, we eulogize them. But then at the end of the day, the way of the world is not rewarding virtue. Uh, and this is the kind of worry, you know, Kant had, lots of people have had that it just looks like that's going to at least motivationally sap your commitment to that. And then you might also wonder if it, if it threatens the rationality of your commitment. So I want to come back to that. But before we get into that, I wanted to backpedal a little bit and go to the, so you had this. First chapter, you talk about the theory of human meaning and human nature from this first-person perspective with a strongly valued meaning. Then you talk about connection to the good life, and that gets us into this stuff ultimately about cosmic meaning. But then you also have a chapter in between on morality. And so in there, you talk about the meaning-seeking animal account of moral virtue, roughly. Like, how is this account going to help us think about moral virtue? Mm. and the moral life and the ethical life and you suggest and you're thinking that of moral you're thinking of moral like other regarding concern that kind yeah, of yeah other regarding. so that's yeah. one thing is you're thinking you think of morality in a broad sense so like the way yeah. scanlon says well there's narrow morality and there's broad morality you're yeah. definitely yeah you're thinking in the most broad sense it's like the whole so, strong evaluative domain is yeah the strong amount yeah and so yeah. and so again it could even include like the aesthetic but exactly at least yeah. it's going to include a lot of the moral moral domain that's a good point and so you think that you talk about McIntyre there, but I think probably also Hearst House and Foot, they don't quite do justice to three different things. One is the intrinsic worth mm -hmm. of constitutive goods in general, but certainly human beings. They don't have an adequate account of solidarity with the severely afflicted and other marginalized human beings. Mm -hmm. So obviously in that part where you're talking about a little bit, but we're all thinking about if we've taught it, uh, yeah. you know, McMahon and Singer and the utilitarians and the status yeah. debates. Yeah. And then moral absolutes. And then universal in particular, other regarding concern. Yeah. So one of the things just coming out of talking about virtue and happiness, do you, you have this common concern. I think that's raised maybe sometimes from like Kantian quarters or utilitarian quarters about that virtue ethics is sort of like excessively self-regarding in some way, that at least in terms of like the focus on the agent's happiness or the agent's own virtue. So, and you do see this, I think, in a lot of accounts where developing the virtues, I, I think, you know, so I, I discuss McIntyre, so I can kind of focus on, on McIntyre a little bit. You know, he's going to say, other regarding virtues, you know, he develops, this, this is in his book, Dependent Rational Animals. And so he develops this account of virtues of acknowledged dependency. We're in these networks, we're in these social networks of giving and receiving. And so we need to develop, you know, certain other regarding virtues to uh, sustain and, and make these social networks of giving and uh, receiving flourish. 
ultimately the justification is that as rational social animals, our good depends upon living in, in community with others, giving our, our we're not fully self-sufficient given our dependencies and our vulnerabilities. And so we need to cultivate uh, character traits that will enable us to, to flourish together with others. But ultimately you kind of have, the, have this instrumentalized justification, even though someone like McIntyre is going to say, well, you know, the person of compassion is going to care about the person for their own sake, because that's what the virtue of compassion does. But it's ultimately justified in terms of how it promotes our, our flourishing as, as rational social animals. And so there's a kind of instrumentalized justification. Uh, and he even gets into caring for those with severe disability, severe affliction. And at one point he mentions this empathetic identification that it could have been us. Um, and then another point he mentions is a kind of asymmetrical reciprocity that we all depend upon care for others that we receive from people who didn't know what our needs would be. And we in turn have to be able to provide that for others, sometimes for the people who cared for us, like our parents as they get, they get elderly. Uh, but oftentimes it's going to be our children or maybe a stranger we happen upon the way. But what's sort of just like conspicuously missing in all of these accounts, uh, you know, that you get from McIntyre, Foote and Hearst House is anything like a sense of human dignity. Uh, now, again, this may sound like a, you know, a Kantian point. Uh, and so if, if this is a Kantian point, it's one that I think Aristotelians need to to uh, to accommodate or it's, you know, Kant may be influenced by this Judeo-Christian worldview about Imago Dei being made in the image of God, our inherent dignity. But this goes back to my account of vir the virtues or what it is to be virtuous. The virtues are modes of proper responsiveness to strong goods, you know, these constitutive goods that, that make for, for meaningful, fulfilling life. And so... I think in a similar way where we act for the sake of the noble, right, you know, act virtuously for its own sake, but in doing so, it's constitutive of our happiness. That's the kind of Aristotelian constitutive good about our human potential as rational social animals, something noble or admirable in that. In a similar way, I think there's these other regarding, there's other human beings can be constitutive goods for us. So we act for the sake of their dignity. We're, we're, we're seeking to be properly responsive to the dignity. We might even say the sanctity uh, of, of other human beings. Uh, and in being so responsive, it's, it's, it contributes to a meaningful, fulfilling life for ourselves, the noble, higher, more meaningful kind of life. And so I think that gets over sort of this kind of dichotomy between self-regarding and other regarding. I think I think you need to sort of transcend that, uh, maybe in a sort of Hegelian kind of move here uh, to say, you know, we should like to be happy is to be happy in my sense of a meaningful life is to be properly responsive in the strong value of meaning sense, uh, be properly responsive to strong goods, things like human dignity. Uh, and so. I think that's missing. Uh, and so you, I think you need it in these different domains, such as I just mentioned with, you know, the, the severely afflicted and other marginalized human beings. But I, I want to, I guess, maybe focus more on the issue of moral absolutes, because this was something, you know, of course, in Anscombe's original, uh, in her more, modern moral philosophy article that really spurred kind of the revival of, of modern virtue ethics. She she's most concerned with consequentialism. I mean, she sort of like mentions uh, she you know, invented this, the term, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she's most concerned with this like uh, rejection of absolute prohibitions that you get in cons consequentialist views. And, you know, so she sort of recommends, you know, if you're not going to be, you know, like a, if you're if you're secular, you should like take this disenchanted form of Aristotelian ethics. It's a better, more sensible approach. But actually, she doesn't think it can ground moral absolutes. Or she's at least skeptical about it. Uh, and she seems ultimately to recommend a, a divine law conception of ethics. And so I, I get into like, well, how, how are we to understand moral absolutes? I actually, I think she's right that just focusing on what's conducive to our flourishing 
is not going to be able to adequately ground absolute prohibitions because, I mean, it gets in a similar problem like rule utilitarianism, that you can always find an exception to the rule. So yes, characteristically, we need justice, but what in what about in a tight, what what about in a pinch or being when you're in a tight corner, you know, wouldn't the unjust thing sometimes be the right thing to do? You know, if like you might have to sacrifice your family to go back to the letter writer's example, uh, might injustice not actually be pay or be, be, be the best thing to do. And, you know, she, she, she agrees. I mean, that's, that's what she says. And, and uh, her, her husband, Peter Geach says something very similar, but I don't think just appealing to divine law does it either because that doesn't explain, I mean, ultimately, I mean, she, uh, I mean, it's a little confusing how she's appealing to divine law. It could sound like a kind of divine command theory where God, if God wills it, then, it, you know, sort of brings us back to the Euthyphro problem, right? Is it right because God wills or does God will it because it's right? I mean, I think ultimately Anscombe endorses a natural law ethic in which you'd have to say that God wills it because it's right. And so then we need an account of like, why are certain actions? Like, so it's not that like a divine law couldn't give you sort of extra motivation, as it were, kind of extrinsic consideration, but it doesn't get at sort of the intrinsic reason for why, you know, uh, we should never potentially kill an innocent human being. And for this, I think you need something like account of human dignity, the special dignity of human life or what actually argues something like, uh, you know, the sanctity of human life, the sense that there's something sacred in human life. And I actually think Anscombe ends up going this direction in her later work, where she talks about uh, a, a, what she calls a religious attitude of reverence for human life, uh, which I think is something like recognizing the sacred. And she thinks you can have this whether you can have this whether or not you're religious, although being religious gives you a framework to understand that that sense of reverence for human life is because human beings are made in the image of God. In another place in her her uh, pretty well-known essay on, on chastity and contraception, she makes this distinction between what she calls utilitarian virtues and mystical virtues. So utilitarian virtues are just those like the, uh, it's like Aristotelian, it's not utilitarian and what we would think of as like Benthamite utilitarianism, but it's like what's useful to help things go well, right? It's It's like what she talked about as like Aristotelian necessities or foot talks about as Aristotelian necessities. So those virtues are needed for things going well. So honesty with regard to like our transactions and business dealings, you know, if, if people aren't going to be trusted then things aren't going to go well. Right. But she says there's these other virtues that don't seem to have their justification primarily in those utilitarian terms, but rather she says that they, they have a mystical justification, which, you know, I don't know if calling it mystical is helps, you know, some people, some people might want to write it off. But I think what she's saying is it's like a sense of the sacred or something of special dignity. So she's trying to use this with regard to chastity. She thinks chastity is is not she thinks you, you can give a, a kind of utilitarian defense of chastity that that things will go better if people are chaste. But she says its ultimate justification is is mystical in the sense of it involves that there's something there's something precious in with regard to human sexuality for her. It has to do with its the origination of human life. But she thinks this is she uses this line. There's no such thing as casual sex. We can only treat it casually, and in doing so, we we uh, we become shallow, we degrade ourselves. But importantly, she also says that respect for life is a mystical virtue. We might call or another way to put it is reverence. Uh, the virtue of reverence. And so this is also a mystical virtue because she thinks trying to explain why it's wrong to kill an innocent human being, you could give a kind of, you know, society will break down if, you know, there's all kinds of murder, uh, and, you know, going around, but she thinks like the wrong done is first and foremost to the victim that you've, 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 and it's not that you've just taken away some pleasant future experiences, but rather that there's something of inherent value about human life where we, where I think we draw on concepts like 
the sacred. You violated something sacred. And she herself doesn't use that concept of sacred, but she talks about something having an, added, an attitude of reverence for human life. So I think another way to think about the sacred is just the reverence worthy, that there's something worthy of reverence in human life. So again, I think that's an example of seeing other human beings as a constitutive good, seeing them as worthy of reverence, and it being properly responsive to them through showing reverence, so through the virtue of reverence. It's, it, we both do what we ought to do, and it's, it, it's constitutive of, of a meaningful form of life. Uh, now, this is important because it goes back to the issue that, you know, um, if you accept certain absolute prohibitions, sooner or later, uh, Sabina Lubaban puts it, you're going, puts it this way, you're going to find a circumstance in which it will turn out disastrous. If you think there are some things that are sort of absolutely required of you, there's going to be circumstances in which, you know, you're going to court disaster. I mean, just think about war examples. Like if you, if you accept some just war criteria founded on the sanctity of life, that we need to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. There's going to be circumstances where you may not, you may not win the war, right? Uh, it, Let me. I want to jump in because a couple yeah. things are just coming to mind because I thought it'd be fun since it's a podcast. Let's do yeah. some stuff on the fly. So, because I had, you know, I'd written, send you some questions. One of my questions was, why do the secular atheists need to develop a, con, a kind of cosmic significance of humanity? Yeah. And so, I could have also asked. So, this in the latter part of the book, you're saying we need a moral ontology of a sort that someone like McDowell seems to be a quietist. We don't need that. Yeah, and there are various reasons. Yeah. Some are about metaethics, but he just generally, I think, doesn't see any pressure to develop a strong moral ontology. And someone like Taylor obviously disagrees with him. And yeah. Then you've got also this question of like whether you have to talk about the meaning of human life in general. And that's something it looks like a lot of philosophers are trying to back off of and they just want to talk about meaning in life. So here's one thing I was thinking like, uh, so earlier in the book, you give an account of the meaning seeking animal. You've talked about, we make strong evaluations. So a good example is, you know, in McDowell, we talk about, you have to take the noble, you distinguish the noble from what would just add to your happiness understood as preference satisfaction. But we can more generally say you need more than the concept of well-being. And that comes out, I think, in this stuff with the, the moral absolutes discussion and, and the engagement with utilitarians. So people like Singer in his latest book and uh, uh, Roger Crisp in his book, Reasons in the Good. One thing that some people have started doing is they started looking at these share and street arguments that say a lot of our you know, intuitions, but they would probably include our moral phenomenology, our emotional responses. We have that stuff because we're evolutionarily programmed. Yeah. So here's an idea. If, 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 if your approach, which I'm sympathetic to is, and it's sort of in line with Williams's stuff is what we need is more moral concepts. So we can't just do our moral theorizing with well-being. So what, well, the target here isn't just the, 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 the consequential maximization type part of utilitarianism. It's the welfareism. And it's saying we need to add in more moral properties that you have to be responsive to in your deliberations and to be virtuous. In particular, take dignity. And, okay, so we know like old school utilitarians like Bentham would be like, that's probably nonsense on stilts. You know, it's probably part of rights or something. Yeah. But these newer utilitarians, what they want to say is, well, a lot of that, and especially if you started saying we need more thick concepts, we need sanctity, who knows, we're going to need all kinds of thick concepts like Williams, more concepts, let's get more stuff in here. They think that's not a good plan. And the reason is a lot of those other concepts are just, you know, one is they're just relativistically culturally local, or even if you can find them in lots of human beings, they're just probably there because we were like trained up to, to think those ways and emote those ways by evolution. And why should we think that's tracking anything that's real? 
And I think that's interesting because like if you kind of add that in, it might buttress or what you're saying is like, well, if you're at this point in the book, you've said we need to enrich our moral vocabulary. We need to talk about dignity and sanctity. So someone like Dworkin might agree. But then the idea is, well, how can you really take those concepts and your intuitions about, say, the dignity of life? So if you're like, I'm not going to maximize welfare outcomes right now in the ER. And the reason is the dignity, I, I perceive the dignity of this person's life who I'd have to unplug to give the ventilator to this other person who's going to have more qualities or whatever it is, you know, whatever, just to give a contemporary example. If you're like, well, I'm hesitant to do that because I perceive the dignity of this person's life or the sanctity of their life. You're going to want to know, is that into, is that good defensible thinking? Yeah. yeah. And I think one part of utilitarian argument, broadly utilitarian arguments are casting doubt on that concepts like that, that do, they, they would admit that shows up in people's phenomenology yeah. and their thought is we have reasons to be skeptical about that reasons of disagreement and also reasons of evolution. And so I, I was thinking that might buttress your case. And look at McDowell. McDowell actually says there's this concept of noble. Yeah, yeah. So he's got one of these concepts that, so yeah. it seems like a good case that someone like McDowell yeah. needs moral ontology to defend the use of the concept of the noble that he thinks shows up in well-raised people's lives. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I, and I, I don't think that the uh, utilitarian is any different position in terms of needing to justify their their sort of moral judgments. I mean, you know, question, you know, our concern for the quality of life or to eradicate suffering as far as possible. There's still this question like, why ought you to care about, you know, uh, the suffering of, you know, these animals and, you know, factory farming and, you know, it tastes good and, you know, like so mm -hmm. forth. Right. Um, like, what is it about the world? Like if, if we're just what the uh, cosmic cat coughed up, so to speak, if we're just sort of here by, by pure, pure chance, right. Like a mm -hmm. big cosmic furball. Um, then, you know, uh, the sort of like, how can there be demands that are there in any case, right? It's, it's trying to make sense of this McDowell idea that there are certain mm -hmm. ethical demands that are there in any case, whether or not we're responsive to them. And does that make sense in a world without any kind of underlying moral teleology, any sense that things are ordered in some way towards the good, right? Uh, and and so part, part of my argument is that I don't think it really does. I mean, it, it's, it's an argument from within. It's not trying to sort of step outside of our ethical perspective. And have this kind of like Archimedean point outside of it, but rather from within, what do we need to make sense of the ethical lives we're living? It doesn't make sense to think there are ethical demands that are there in any case. And so, you know, something like dignity or sanctity of life. Um, I mean, Anscombe herself says it's it's a sort of perception that human life is for something, right? That there's some something that our sense of that there's a dignity or a sanctity in human life is a sense that it's something there's something for a higher higher endeavor, whether it's sort of our, our ability. You know, for her, it's to know and love God and to love our neighbor, right? Uh, that's that's mm -hmm. the theistic Christian point of view, right? Um, in a similar way, you can have with Nagel that life is for something, right? That it's, you know, we're, we're a part of the universe waking up and becoming aware of itself. So it's sort of this question of sense-making from within. How do we make sense mm -hmm. of the ethical lives we're living? I think that same question is there for uh, for utilitarians, for Kantians, for Aristotelian virtue ethicists. I'm, you know, I'm obviously focusing on developing this Aristotelian virtue ethic approach. But um, I think the other big thing is to go back to the cosmodicy issue. Like I think, uh, you know, we, we've, we're faced with the sort of like, you know, issues we were talking about from the second chapter of my book on the face of loss and tragedy, right? Is, is, life, is, is life good? Is it good to be here? Is it good to have been born to, um, um, 
you know, can we can we come to firm life as worthwhile in the face of evil and suffering? And so, again, I think we need some overall picture of, of the world that we can find a, a meaningful place within it. Right. Yeah. So in the last chapter, I really addressed this issue of cosmodicy by looking at the role of spirituality in human life. So I ultimately, so I, I argue that we're the meaning seeking animal, but I think ultimately this leads to a, a view of human beings as homo religiosus, as religious by nature. And I don't make any sort of strong distinction between religion and spirituality. Uh, I think uh, when you're spiritual, you know, if you, if you get serious about spirituality of putting that into practice, you start doing it regularly, oftentimes maybe seeking others to, to encourage you in that life and drawing upon uh, wisdom from the past. And so I, I don't sort of have, you know, some people say spiritual, but not religious, but uh, I think spirituality and religion ultimately should be seen as as connected and spirituality, I understand is uh, a practical life orientation shaped by a self-transcending source of meaning. So it's a way of trying to find our place in the cosmos, right? And trying to find a meaningful place in the cosmos and, and, and uh, to uh, align our lives with uh, sources of meaning beyond ourselves and to, and to, to have that orient our, our practical life orientation to, to engage in certain spiritual practices, including cultivating the virtues, uh, um, but one of the important things I, I end up uh, really arguing for towards the end, and I mentioned this earlier, is uh, the importance of contemplation in human life. I think this is a really key part uh, of human life and of the spiritual life in particular. Uh, and it's interesting. I mean, uh, this was another issue. Like I, I uh, there's another issue that where I, I sort of had issue. There's another area where I had issues with uh, a lot of contemporary neurosatilians because a lot of them is just sort of like either don't address it or for instance, Hearst house just sort of sideline explicitly sidelines. It says, well, you know, Aristotle may, you know, think, you know, there's another end to human life, which is the good functioning of the intellect. But, you know, she wants to focus on these, these four natural ends and, and sort of leave that aside. Uh, again, those natural ends are things like, uh, uh, um, individual survival, uh, you, you know, promoting the good functioning of a social group, having certain characteristic pleasures and enjoyments. Um, and uh, so I, I think this is really problematic because uh, it, it, again, connects up with being the meaning seeking animal that um, I think in ways we are uh, by nature philosophers, uh, you know, that we seek wisdom in life. And so I think I distinguish between two senses of contemplation. So one, one sense of the contemplative life is just uh, the sort of uh, philosophical life the, or what Socrates calls the examined life that we're trying to seek wisdom in our lives. And, you know, I, I think as human beings, we all sort of live by some worldview or cosmic outlook, as I called it. Uh, and we're forced in our lives at times to reflect upon that, to you know, maybe question what are our reasons for believing this or that? Does it make sense? Maybe there's some facet of our experience that, that challenges us. I mean, so Aristotle says that, you know, philosophy uh, begins with wonder. Uh, I mean, another way to sort of it's like when you, when you are perturbed by something, when something uh, is disconcerting in your experience that you, you can't make sense of. And so I think it's part of being human, part of being the meaning seeking animal that, um, that we philosophize, right? It's a, it's a, it's a fundamentally important human activity to philosophize. And so uh, to say that's not part of the human good, I think, I, I, I mean, I think in partly, you know, people like Hearst tells are thinking like, oh, I don't want to sound elitist. Like you have to, you know, like be a philosopher to have a good life. And there's often this charge, uh, against you know Plato and Aristotle, that there's this kind of this elitist mentality. Uh, but I don't argue. No, this is just fundamentally humanly important. We all do it to some extent. Sometimes it may be at a kind of inchoate level, 
Uh, but the goal is to sort of make that uh, more explicit, to articulate our, our worldview, to, to, to art, you know, give reasons for it. Uh, uh, and, and so, you know, I sort of endorse this, you know, kind of ancient conception of philosophy as a way of life. It's, it's part of living well as human beings that we, we seek wisdom. <clears throat> and by wisdom, I mean holistic understanding, a, a way of understanding ourselves in the whole that can shape a conception of the good life. And so wisdom is ultimately realized in, in living it out. So in this sense, I think theoretical and practical wisdom need to be connected. So that's one important sense, I think, of the contemplative life is just that we're seeking holistic understanding, aiming at a good life. The other sense of contemplation, which I think is ultimately uh, most important uh, for living a good life, is uh, contemplate. And this is, gets closer to uh, the Greek term teoria for contemplation, which is, is a kind of beholding or looking uh, what I call uh, appreciative attention. So it's a kind of way of appreciatively attending to the world. Uh, I think Iris Murdoch is a good example of someone who, you know, says we need to cultivate these patterns of attention and give my own account of virtue as being properly responsive to what's of value in the world. Um, I think contemplation has a central role. We can't act well without first appreciatively attending to what's of value in the world. But ultimately, I think uh, the importance of appreciative attention is whether we can come to affirm the world as a whole as good, right? Not that everything in it is is uh, good or as it should be, but can we affirm that that life is life in the world is good, right? That it's good to be here. It's good to have been born. Uh, again, that's the cosmodicy issue. So contemplation is of central importance for coming to address this problem of cosmodicy. Is life in the world worthwhile in the face of evil and suffering? And I mentioned earlier the passage from Aristotle in Eudemian Ethics, uh, Book 1, Chapter 5, where he raises this question, is it, is it good to be here rather than never to have been? And he, he ultimately appeals to Anaxagoras, who says, addressing these same questions, says, we're here to behold the the, the heavens and the order of the universe, right? Uh, that's, you know, that's sort of what, you know, we're here to appreciatively attend to the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think this sort of fits with, you know, the, the sort of like uh, um, that, that sort of picture of a kind of cosmic teleology that Nagel puts forward. And I think you can also find in sort of a theistic perspective as well. We're here to know and love the world. And ultimately, if you're a theist, the source of the world, right? As, as, as having a, a creative source in God. And so the theist ultimately, it's the beatific vision, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, the happy vision of God or the, uh, the deeply fulfilling, uh, ultimately fulfilling vision of, of sort of the, the, the universe or the source of the universe as fundamentally good. And so part of what I say is, you know, I think ultimately the whole virtue ethics paradigm, you know, insofar as we need a cosmodicy, it, you know, in, in order to bring together the sort of the demands of morality or virtue with, you know, a meaningful life to see that to see virtue as constitutive of a meaningful life. I think it's ultimately sustained by a kind of uh, contemplative or appreciative attention to the world as a whole, coming to see it as good, affirming it in that way. I mean, it's similar to like if you take like the first creation story in, in Genesis where God creates the world and on the seventh day rests and, and completes the creation by resting and and a uh, appreciatively beholding it as as good saying it's very good so can we can we in our own way come to an appreciative vision of the world and this is really what true leisure is or, or you know in, in the judeo-christian tradition the sabbath the sabbath experience abraham joshua heschel has this wonderful book you might know on on the sabbath where he says the sabbath is not a mere armistice it's not a mere sort of resting to get on with the real business of life, but actually it's the telos of creation. Uh, it's the, the sort of contemplative beholding 
that takes place, place in the Sabbath actually fulfills all the work and activity that we're doing. And so I think we ultimately need this kind of Sabbath or leisure experience and in, in, in sort of the, the sense that Joseph Pieper uses in his book on leisure, I think is getting at something like the Sabbath experience. We need this kind of ability to have a contemplative appreciation of not only of our own work and, and the things we're doing and the people around us, but the world as a whole uh, in order to address this this issue of cosmodicy. So, you know, I get some into like, you know, what, what difference does a, a theistic view make in spirituality and, you know, having a kind of existential gratitude for existence and seeing life as a gift in that way. So, but I think, you know, I think this, this issue of uh, the place of contemplation in human life, I think it's actually of central importance. I think my account of our being the meaning seeking animal helps to make sense of why contemplation is so important for including for for Aristotle but for all human beings and I think uh, it's it's a big problem that a lot of uh, contemporary Aristotelians have neglected that I think it's it's actually not something you can just sort of lop off without without loss to the whole the whole uh, program so yeah that's that's where I end yeah no and I, I think that was really interesting and I, I also like you know in that chapter right it's not you know I mean, one reason is it's not obviously tied to any particular religion but it might also even accommodate people like David Benatar who are like right about you could be an atheist yeah maybe you could still consider yourself you know you're a practicing Jew yeah uh, and so a lot of cultic practice and stuff could be connected to con contemplative appreciation of various goods. Yeah, I think Benatar could use some uh, some because he's got the book. <laughs> he's got the book better never to have been. So he, in fact, thinks it'd be better if we never were. Where I'm saying we need to come to a way to affirm that right. it is good to be here, actually, right. Right. Uh, in order to sustain the life of virtue and something all of us, whether you know we're, we're theistic or not. Now, I ultimately sort of push you know in a theistic direction to argue for like you know what difference that would make, but it. It's, it's a paradigm of spirituality that I think uh, whether you're, you're theistic or not, I think you can you can find it important and something you should try to find a place for in, in your own life. Uh, that, that's the case I make. Yeah, yeah no, and I think you're right. That's like a nice case. If you start that part of your book, if you read that and you start thinking about the, the, the way in which something like contemplative appreciation of goods, those experiences are, seem like they're part of well-being. They seem important, and they and in those experiences, you at least phenomenologically experience you're in touch with great values. Like if you go yeah. to Grand Canyon, like I'm a big hiker, and I think it does raise this question. Uh, I can see how it's connected to that. Looks like it's disclosing a set of values that I think some moral philosophers or or, or value theorists are going to wonder about how seriously we can take the values that at least appear to us to be disclosed in those moments. And, and that's where, again, I think you're, one thing I like is how that connects up with the previous chapter on theodicy. One thing I thought I'd mention is you talk about cosmodicy, you talk about people like Rorty and other people. So somebody could have a kind of ironic attitude. They could have these mm -hmm. contemplative experiences. They could find them to be very enriching and they could think, oh yes, it seems like I'm in touch with these properties that make nature worthy of awe. And I experience awe and it seems fitting and they could they could they could sort of articulate that worldview that they're they're disposit that are in, that's sort of embedded but in their dispositions, yeah. And then they could have a sort of ironic attitude towards that in thinking yeah. it, there is no big picture story that really undergirds this, and it is a it's sort of a grand illusion. And I, that's one of the things I thought I mentioned that I liked yeah. about the theodicy. I thought your contemplation that last chapter makes a strong case for look. As human beings, we're inclined to have a part of our experience that suggests that you want 
to have this backdrop story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's metaphysical in you know some sense, and it involves stories about the meaning of cosmic significance. And okay, you're open to the idea someone can try to tell a story about how this is going to be stable under reflection, roughly, even without positing a moral, strong moral ontology or cosmos. But but you want to have that discussion, and yeah. so you that this and the role of contemplation. Those are important to put those questions on the table as issues that Neuristotelians, but other theorists too, need to grapple with more. And uh, yeah, I think it's like yeah. why why should we care about it? It's partly because we are the meaning seeking animal. We we want to know how it stands between us and the universe, you know, so to speak, or between us and the cosmos. And uh, and the worry is that without some account of that, it, there could be a deflationary experience. It's you know, the, I think the worry with the kind of ironic move that someone like Rorty or I think even um, I mean this is a constant issue for Williams, where you know want to maintain these conf- this confidence in these ethical reasons, but when you sort of reflection can destroy ethical knowledge, it has a sort of deflationary effect. Once you come to see our, our ethical beliefs as, as radically contingent, if there is no sort of uh, moral teleology or order towards the good, right? There's sort of this worry. I think it's it's at least uh, it's vulnerable to a certain kind of concern. I think for the most part, people have tried these diffusing strategies or to, to not worry about those things. But I, I hope at the very least I get people to take those sort of grand cosmic type questions seriously as important for our ethical lives. I think we kind of compartmentalize ethics from something we might call spirituality or these questions of the meaning of life. But, um, you know, if, if, you know, the kind of ultimate aim or like an overarching aim of the book is to get people to to take those kinds of, of questions seriously. Yeah, and it's not just bad scientism. So that would be another way of making this point yeah. is, you know, we read Williams, you can see how he provoked like the McDowell response. He might be wrong about the absolute conception and it being tied to uh, physics or even that it makes sense if you read Putnam. Okay, there's all these responses, but I think what you're kind of getting at is that maybe this desire to have some sort of intelligent, something like a theory that undergirds this, that's a, there's an internal reason to want that from the point of view of of our life. And it's not, it's not the result of scientism or the desire for an Archimedean point. So it's, and so I think absolutely. Yeah. From within, from within it matters to us. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, David. This has been a lot of fun and I look forward to, uh, I'm going to write an actual review where I will, of course, be disagreeing with you because I'm a philosopher (laughs) and we'll talk about that that. offline sometime in the future. So uh, take care. This is a lot of fun, Brad.